0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello everyone. you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 118. It is Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. And today I sit down with an old friend of mine, Trevor Parham. We were in kindergarten to fourth grade together um, at school in Oakland. and then I mo- when my family moved to the Monterey Peninsula, which is a few hours south of the Bay Area. I went to a different school. Then Trevor was actually a boarding student for a year at that school. So um, our careers are kind of similar but different. He does a lot of activism and entrepreneurial work in the East Bay. So we talk about that. We talk about growing up together. And it was a great interview. It was great catching up with him. So uh, yeah, that's what's up. This episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larsians, of course. If you want to support me on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash mclars. You get two new songs a month. I'm doing all the Star Wars songs now. Uh, Let's see, I have uh, my Return of the Jedi song coming up. I have a lot of flavor dropping shortly. So if you wanna sign up, check it out. this episode was brought to you by the new ones who recently signed up. Shout out to Trish, Michael, and Ty. Shout out to the old ones, Joshua, Thomas, and Nick. I appreciate y'all. We've been doing the four Horseman streams. We'll be doing one coming up in April. I hope you all had a good Easter. And so let's get into it. This is my interview with Trevor Parham. Welcome back to the MC Laura's podcast. I'm here with Trevor Parham of Oak Stop and the Oakland Black Business Fund. And uh, he was kind enough to spend some time with me during his busy schedule to talk about life growing up in the Bay Area, how our lives intersected in interesting ways in high school, and the activism and entrepreneurial work he's done using his Penn degree to make a difference in the world. So Trevor, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, man. It's it's great to be here. It's great to hear your voice and uh, to be plugged into your world.
0: Man, it was cool. Cause Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I follow you on LinkedIn. I was like, this dude is doing interesting stuff. And like, I don't know, I, the podcast is a fun way to catch up with people, but it's also a cool platform to show how our generation is specifically adaptable and how our shared history has in, informed us. And so I guess let's go back to the origin. So where did we meet?
1: Let's see. We met in... 1988 um, in Oakland at, at Hedroy School in kindergarten
0: yeah kindergarten we were it was a s- small class what was it like 12 kids 17
1: if I remember correctly
0: Hedroy school used to be a, a girls school
1: that's right it was the Anna Anna head school for girls. And it was originally based in Berkeley, I think, and then later on ended up moving to Oakland and and merging with the Royce School for Boys.
0: Ah, okay. Because you were there the whole time, except for one year when we were we both went to school in Pebble Beach at the you're a boarding student. That's right. You have an older brother and a younger sister, right? That's right. You all went there. How how are they doing right now? Like, how's your family?
1: Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, I'm in touch with them regularly. My my brother. Just had his first uh, kid during COVID, um, right around the the very beginning, actually, of shelter in place. Uh, his my nephew's birthday is the last day of March, basically. So his, his birthday is coming up again. Um, so yeah, my my brother is sort of doing the new dad thing. He's also a teacher. Um, he works in a, a special ed program, um, and so he's both a teacher, but also somebody that has, you know, even more sort of complex work to manage. And now he's doing that through a distanced context, which I, I don't know how he does it. Um, and so, yeah, he lives here in the Bay Area, he and his wife. Um, my sister is living in Oakland and she works for Facebook. Um, so she's she's been in the tech industry now probably the last, maybe last five plus years or so, something like that. I think she worked for for Dropbox as well and LinkedIn, um, and now she's at Facebook, so she's loving that um, yeah, yeah and, and my mom is still in the bay Area. she's in she's in Hercules, so uh, not too far, and we're getting ready to celebrate her birthday this Sunday, so
0: yeah, I'll never forget this so you remember how they used in Hedroyce, they used to have the um, Halloween parties like the carnival mm-hmm. and your mom taught me an interesting. Uh, An interesting lesson about responsibility. So we had our bags and there was like a a a, uh, haunted maze and your mom was hanging out with a few parents and I went over to them and I'm like, hey, we're all going to go through the Halloween maze. We're going to leave our bags. Um, Can you keep an eye on them? And she was like, don't ask us to watch your bags because if you're going to go in the maze, they might disappear. We may not be here. So uh, you should take it with you. And I never forget that because she was nice about it, but she's also like, no, like we might not be here. So... (laughs) I'll never forget that. I don't know if you remember that or if you were even there, but that was cool. I
1: mean, I remember, I definitely remember those Halloween fairs every year. And that sounds exactly like my mom. I mean, I, I don't recall her saying that, but that sounds spot on. You know, she's always about being, being self-reliant You know, and, and making sure that ultimately you get to have fun the way you want to. Just keep your candy.
0: And then I remember it was second grade. There was the Oakland Hills fire. And am I right that y'all lost your home?
1: We did. Sure so that was in 1991. And that fire actually started directly across the street from our house. Um, so, you know, it was inevitable, more or less, that we would lose our home. But it also meant that we had to evacuate uh, pretty much as soon as we realized that there was a fire that was you know, sort of building. And we we left more or less just with the clothes on our back. I, I was a soccer player. So I ended up The night before, I was I had a soccer game, and so I woke up in my soccer uniform, and that was essentially what I left in. And oddly enough, at age nine, I still thought to grab my wallet, Um, whatever was in there. I thought if there's one thing I'm going to grab at age nine to keep forever, it's going to be my wallet. And so I got that and some sneakers and my soccer uniform, and we, we left the house.
0: And do you still have your wallet?
1: I got to ask about that. I got to ask about that. Um, you know, it, it shows yeah. some of those things you think are special end up disappearing.
0: Yeah, no, but that's interesting, man. Well, that's uh maybe that's um maybe that was prescient a prescient symbol of your entrepreneurialism as a kid.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly.
0: <laughs> I remember you. You had this. You were the one of the first friends that I knew who had like a. It's like a Commodore sixty four, some sort of computer that was actually connected to your TV, and you could play games on it. Do you remember what was that?
1: So I mean, well, we had we had Nintendo early on, but then we also had. Um, I think what you're referring to was Texas Instruments, um, which I think most of us know Texas Instruments for making those graphing calculators. A yeah. lot of us used in high school, but they also, um, you know, they, they also made a video game system that we had before Nintendo was out. So this was probably, you know, 1984, 1985. Um, my dad got that for us. And all I remember on it now was, a, they had like a racing game. Um, but besides that, you know, I don't remember much about it. And I do remember the summer that we learned about Nintendo at my cousin's house, DC. And that must have been, 1987, and we got a Nintendo shortly after, and I don't remember anything about that Texas Instruments after we got the first NES.
0: You were one of the first kids to have a Nintendo, even before, like, I don't know, Ridgely. I remember Ridgely was really into Nintendo, too. Yep, yep, yeah. (laughs) That's what's up. It's interesting how things like that, having a family and having parents that that were able to um, offer us digital tools at a young age... I realize now how how formative that was, being able to move blocks around, solve problems, and having parents who didn't um, stigmatize that. Right? Like that was. I, I see that now as incredibly positive. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on are on that. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, you know, I think about that a lot, especially now that I'm a parent and have a have a five year old. And so, um, you know, she's. I'm actually using her iPad right now. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting how. We're in 2021 and one of the biggest industries people talk about all the time is, is tech. And interestingly enough, uh, I didn't put this together until I got older, but my parents actually worked in tech, um, before it was really, before it was called tech. It was, Hmm. if anything, it was called computers or, or technology, you know, back in, back in the seventies and the eighties. But my, my mom was working for Xerox computers, um, you know, back in around the time that I was born, she was working for Xerox and that was in the early 80s. Um, I believe my dad had also worked for Xerox for a stint. And then he also was in uh, IBM computer sales uh, when I was really young. And so, yeah, we we typically had, you know, some some product from one of those companies my parents were working with um, in the house, Um, whether it was, um, I think we had a, we had some sort of computer that was way before a lot of the graphic user interfaces um, were around. And I still remember like sitting in my parents' lap, watching them do like command prompt stuff. And that was probably when I was, you know, maybe only two years old. And so, um, you know, that's the green green flashing cursor on black. Um, so my dad just brought home a lot of technology all the time and got my brother and I into it. And I think that you know, when you look at something like video games, especially at that time, um, you know, my, my dad saw this great opportunity both to, you know, kind of play around with some of these you know gadgets, but also to get his, his kids, you know, more into technology at an early age. And, you know, I've, I've taken technology with me through my entire life. And I feel like um, I tell people that my, my background is essentially a mix of, of art, technology and business. And, you know, I've used those throughout. I I built my first computer maybe when I was still a kid in high school. Um, I had jobs as a IT support person actually working with one of my dad's companies um, that he worked at uh, in in Silicon Valley at age 15. So I was doing IT support in the Valley at 15. So, you know, all those experiences gave me both the familiarity, but also the confidence with technology. But also, like, in a way that it was never for me, it was never really associated with being you know, a, an outcast or, or anything like that or a geek or whatever whatever kind of terms people want to use. um it was just it was really just a tool. And I just learned how to apply that tool to other things I was interested in, in throughout throughout growing up
0: that's cool. So it was just part of your fluency of of how you perce- perceived and interpreted the world since you were two that's crazy man
1: exactly and you know it's interesting when we were at stevenson together uh i had been djing in oakland um prior to that i started my first dj company when i was 15 so interestingly enough it was right around the time that i was working in silicon valley doing it support um and i built my dj company around the fact that i was one of the first people i knew who was able to get access to um to MP3s, um, and this was, you know, this is when it was really considered pirated music, and before you had file sharing services like Napster, um, which I think was the first one that actually came out when we were at Stevenson, I believe. And so, you know, I was having to basically find a whole archives of of pop music MP3s by going on things like IRC chat and finding people that mm. had their servers, and it was sort of like a barter system where you would you know, have to have something of access to, you know, be able to trade with somebody to get access to their, you know, get a, get a password to then download as much as you could. So by the time I was, you know, 16, that must've been sometime around, um, what I guess like 1998, um, you know, I had gigs and gigs of MP3s downloaded and this was on dial-up. And so,
0: yeah, <laughs> you know, I,
1: I would turn it on before I go to school in the morning and come back and it'd be like a whole album, woohoo, you know, within... <laughs> within within seven hours a day yeah
0: Um, I remember you you had the uh super duck breaks which was like the breakbeat vinyl that's right and I used I used a lot of those for some of my first raps like because I had never heard like instrumental beats like that so that was a that was a cool hookup to get from you awesome man I'm I'm glad you remember that
1: you just brought me back um and so yeah I mean doing the mp3 thing was what got me into to actually doing turntablism because you know, the first couple of parties that I, that I DJed, you know, there's like house parties in Oakland and, you know, they're for, for teenagers. And I remember bringing like a whole desktop computer and a big CRT monitor to this party. And people looked at me super strange. They're like, what, what's the computer for dude? And I am like, uh, and I, I couldn't really find a way to, 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 you know, say that I was pirating music because at the time it was, it was pretty taboo and it's kind of odd. So I made up all these lies as to what the computer was for. I I said, it was like a playlist management software that I had that allowed me to keep track of what I had played. And people just walked away like, okay, cool. That makes sense.
0: (laughs) So you, would you, but were you actually cutting on scratching over the MP3s?
1: Uh, I started out just crossfading in between my parents' disc changer and MP threes and then I also yeah. started using virtual turntables, which was some, you know, low grade app that was developed probably sometime, you know, right around when waves and MP threes became more popular for, for pop music. So um yeah, that was what I started with. And then later on I would once I got into turntables, I, you know, would, would connect my MP three source to a mixer. And then I would, you know, cut or scratch and crossfade between the two.
0: That's cool. So you were an early, an early proponent of of that. I guess what they call about the celestial jukebox, right? That's right. What they say in the music industry. That was the. Uh, that's cool. That the, and um. So when you were at Stevenson, there was a, was that one of the first times you were like able to access Ethernet like twenty four seven and download more stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. Actually, I think that might have been. One of the first times, and I don't know what the speed was there, but my parents, I want to say maybe my parents had like 56K before that, or maybe a DSL line. And so being yeah. able to plug in at Stevenson definitely, you know, upped the game and I was able to download a lot more. And, you know, I also, I also used to go on eBay at night and, and find vinyl on eBay and had a whole lot of vinyl shipped to my, uh, my room at Stevenson, um, because I would, I would hear stuff on the radio and what have you, but I didn't necessarily know how to find, find it in a record store. And I couldn't always make it back up to Berkeley to go to like Amoeba or Rasputin. So uh, that was, eBay was my vinyl hookup resource when I was still in Pebble Beach.
0: Growing up in Oakland and then going to Pebble Beach, like, what was that like?
1: I grew up in Oakland, was at a school like Hedroyce, which was a, you know affluent private school and really small, pretty sheltered, um, not a lot of diversity. So, you know, I had to get those other experiences outside of of school typically um and the reason that i went to stevenson was i got to a point in the 10th grade where i just couldn't stand being in the same small kind of sheltered private school environment for at, the, at that point it had been you know 11 years and i just found myself not having any any motivation or interest to keep doing school even though I, like academically i never really had any problems it was more just I just want to see something else in my life. And so uh, my parents and I looked around at different options for places we could go. And my, my mom was pretty, pretty intent on me staying in, in more of an independent school, given you know the education I'd had thus far. So we actually found Stevenson through another friend of ours, um, whose my friend's sister had gone there and seemed to have generally had a good experience. And so I went down there and, you know, what was interesting is that it, It was actually just a lot more exciting. I mean, honestly, it was what I needed for that year away. Um, You know, I think there's a whole lot of other sort of um, socioeconomic um, implications and and questions and conversations around it. But for me, it was, you know, a whole different group of people, a lot of people who actually were, you know, internationally based. Um, My my roommate for the first year was was from Germany. So, um, you know, I got that exposure, but then also... Um, you're in this beautiful environment like Pebble Beach, and you just kind of had a different scene. Uh, so, in a lot of ways, I, I think it was great being able to get out of Oakland and just sort of see a different, just a different vibe and a different setting. Having been in the same school for 11 years, um, and I went back actually because, funny enough, and you might remember this, uh, a lot of kids got kicked out of that school. Um, which, you know, was never a fun thing. And, and I didn't get kicked out, but one of my really close friends did get kicked out. Um, this guy, you might remember this guy. He was a boarding student. His name was Thad Hudson. Um, yeah, Thad. And Thad got kicked out, and that was really sort of a sad moment for me because we were really close in our rooms, and the dorms were like, I think we were two doors away or something like that in the dorms. And, you know, I got to a point towards the end of the year where, you know, I like to party and, and, and cause trouble like most high school kids. And I think it got to like prom or something like that. And I won't go into detail on it unless you really want me to. But um, long story short, there was an incident where um, I said I was going to be staying with somebody, uh, a certain family off campus. And, you know, given the way things work that night, you know, after prom, people just Kind of, you know, going wherever they're going to go later in the night. I end up sleeping somewhere else, and woke up the next morning. And actually, um, I actually wrote the dean of students. This was like a very grown up moment for me. I wrote the dean of students and just told him straight up. I was like, Hey, look, I don't really know how I'm going to get out of this, so I'm just going to tell you that like I didn't stay where wow. I'm supposed to stay, and you're probably going to get a call from the parents. So I figure if I tell you first, it won't be a drama. You'll just know, and you know, we can kind of deal with it from there and you know he wrote me back and he just said yo like it's people like you that actually make my job a lot more rewarding and also a lot easier so you know don't worry about it thanks for telling the truth and wow man yeah you know who knows a 17 year old think like that but um you know that ended up um kind of telling me like you know what that was close enough of a call i i don't think that i need to um put myself in a position where I get kicked out of high school. It's just not that serious. Um, And I don't really want that on my, you know, on my record, but I also just don't want that in my psyche. And so uh, I just remember, you know, talking to my parents and saying, you know, um, this is a great school, but I think it would be better if I went back to Oakland just because, um, you know, I won't have those kind of strict rules. You know, we had to be in the dorms at like 1030 at night and stuff. And I was you know, I think the way I thought about it was like, I don't want to be 18 years old with a car and a driver's license. And, you know, I'm going to want to do certain things and kind of be a certain way as a teenager. And obviously, you know, as a boarding student, it's, there's sort of a different structure here. And I just, you know, I talked to my parents about it and just wasn't so much about getting kicked out. It was more so just, is this realistic to to kind of be in this environment right now, even though I, I liked it and had fun. Um, you know, another part of it um, with, with like I mentioned, Thad, my buddy getting kicked out, uh, Thad was a senior and it just so happened, I don't know if you remember any of this, but it just so happened that because I came from the school I was in before at head Royce, um, a lot of the classes I took that junior year were actually senior classes. And mm. so, you know, That combined with, um, you know, another friend of mine from Oakland who you, I know, did a lot of work with, um, Bernard, um, who's also a senior, um, a lot of the people I was hanging out with on a regular basis were actually graduating. So I kind of saw it as like, well, most of the people I'm really kind of connected to here are leaving regardless. Some already got kicked out and I'm going to be 18 wanting to kind of just be independent and you know it's probably not a good mix and you know maybe i want to go back home to oakland where i can actually have more of that independence and so that was really it you know um i think that kind of to the point of your question i think that some of it could have been perceived as you know maybe some of it was 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 cultural or um you know just a matter of of fit but overall i actually really liked what was going on at the school for the most part um I just don't think that it worked for me to be a boarding school student, um, given given that I had so much exposure to, to the non-boarding school student community. Um, and that was how I spent most of my weekends was not on campus. So, you know, right. just, just try to be I'm responsible, sh- I guess.
0: Do you feel like Head Royce was more or less academically challenging? Or is it about the same?
1: That's a good question. Um, I felt that for the most part, Head Royce was more academically challenging. Um, I do think that there was a couple areas at Stevenson where I did feel like it was a little bit more intensive um maybe more so in like the math and sciences um hmm. but um, you know, I know that in other classes um i I didn't feel I didn't feel like it was more challenging, and in a lot of ways, like I said, I think that that was kind of part of the reason that I ended up in in a lot of other senior classes uh because. I just had already done. So I was in a senior, I was in AP Biology. I was in um, AP European History. Um, I was in pre-calculus for math, which is, I think, more of like a higher level junior math class. And then I was in like honors English. And then I don't know what what else I took, um, you know, those years. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely remember coming to a place like Stevenson and feeling like I was prepared, which was awesome. Um, and I never once felt behind or like I got someplace and all of a sudden I really struggled.
0: What led you to want to go to, uh, Penn?
1: So I applied to a total of 11 schools, uh, my senior year. And with Penn, what was interesting about it was there was, they did one of those like on-campus, um, presentations or whatever to talk to kids and, it turned out that there was actually quite a few people that from my school that would go to Penn every year. So it was a bit of a West coast feeder school. Mm. Um, So I remember, you know, a handful of people went to this info session and we were talking directly to some admissions representative and, you know, he's asking questions, you know, like what does everybody want to be when they grow up or when you go to college or whatever. And, you know, it was almost like if you remember, there was that interlude on the uh, the Snoop Dogg Doggy style album oh, yeah. where he's asking everyone what they want to grow up. And um my response was, I wanna I wanna make music and and record uh, artists and basically like make beats and produce. And he was like he didn't understand. He didn't he wasn't even like, No, we don't have it. He didn't understand. He was like, So do you wanna be in marching band, son? And I was like no, and he's like, "Well, we have a lot of acapella groups on campus. Would you want to do something like that, like acapella?" And I was like, "No, I mean like, I want to be at the mixing board in the studio." And he was kind of like, "I don't, I don't think that we have those kind of courses." And he finally reduced it down to this, and I'll never forget it. He said, "You know, that sounds like you just want to push a lot of buttons, son. And if you want to push buttons, you should probably go to some place like San Diego State." Because we don't push buttons at Penn.
0: But hip-hop culture was such a, like, a nascent thing where, like, the older generation didn't quite take it so seriously yet.
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, that was, like, you know, basically 99, 2000. And, um... So, the funny thing is, is that, you know, it was an info session, so they hand you you a packet or whatever. And, you know, I took the packet, went home, and and I think I literally kind of just tossed it on the floor of my room in the corner. And, you know, just thought the guy was kind of a jerk. And... uh, then I remember as I was doing all my applications and I was finishing, this was probably right around, I think sometime around like New Year's Eve. Um, I think most applications had to be in you know, the first of January. So um, I remember I'd finished all the other applications, some were Common App or whatever. And I looked down <laughs> in the corner of my room and I saw this folder from Penn. And I thought, oh, that place. Uh, let me take a look at that and see if like... <laughs> all the other answers I had, I could just copy and paste more or less. And I looked at it and I was like, all right, I could probably just make this a copy and paste job and you know, throw it in with the rest of them, why not? Push
0: some buttons, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> and yeah. so um, that's that's basically what happened As I I've, I've completed that application. At the last application, I completed somewhat as an afterthought and then got in. And I got into seven out of 11 of the schools that I got into, and um or that i applied to and you know it just it turned out that they actually offered the best uh financial assistance package and so my parents said look you know between going to uc berkeley and going to penn it's actually it's actually going to cost us less if you go to uc berkeley and so or i'm sorry if you go to penn so right. you know i kind of thought all right and you know i've been hanging out in uc berkeley territory forever so all right yeah let's 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 check this out and so the funny, you know, sort of aftermath to the story is that I go to Penn, uh, I start out majoring in, and start up focusing on business, uh, kind of took a shift into communications, and then ended up in fine art. And within fine art, I ended up uh, concentrating within their digital media program and mm-hmm. got an award as the most talented senior in my graduating art class for being a multimedia concentration, which was pushing buttons. I would just I got the job because I sat in the video editing lab all night and, and edited music videos for my friends' groups up in New York. And finally the woman who ran the lab, she came up to me. She's like, You're always here. Do you want to just get paid? Because you also are doing a lot of dope stuff. Yeah. Like as an editor. So you might as well like teach other people since you're gonna be here at like three in the morning. And I was like, all right, that's cool. So
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Did you end up producing more music like throughout this time that I haven't heard maybe
1: it, it, it turned out that a lot of my other friends were doing a lot of music stuff and, and frankly they just it they was better than me at it and i kind of found my niche in video cuz nobody was really doing that and i've been making videos since i was a kid as well just like stop motion stuff and so um i kind of found this niche in doing hip hop music videos that also had Um, elements of of graphic design and motion graphics uh, factored into them and so um, that both kind of got me you know got me more exposure and and more gigs and and just um, you know a bigger community of people around me in the hip-hop world but also then it allowed me to learn from other producers and learn from other MCs you know what they do because I just spent all the time in the studio so in doing all of that, then you know I got better at rapping, I got better at producing, um, and then at the same time, I was making music videos. So it got to a point where I could more or less, and, and since I was you know a kid who had a grasp of technology, it got to a point where I could kind of do all those on my own. So um, I started That's doing a, a lot of videos with my friends, and then eventually they brought me in to, to also perform in the songs too.
0: Um, and are those on YouTube? Like, how can I find them?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, most of all that is on YouTube. Uh, I have a channel, it's spelt, um, it's actually my DJ name that I had when I was at Stevenson. Um, I went by DJ Eclectic and I spelled Eclectic in a strange way as everybody has to do if you're in hip hop. It was spelled E-K-L-E-C-T-Y-K.
0: Are there any artists that you work with coming up in New York that then went on to do like other stuff that maybe some of the audiences heard of? When I was in New
1: York, um, and this was sort of while I lived at Penn in Philadelphia, I I would take the bus up to New York almost every weekend after a while because it's just more interesting. And um, I started out working with uh, a group that was actually, um, they were friends of my cousin. Uh, My cousin grew up in DC and one of the MCs in the group also grew up with him. And so my cousin introduced us and interestingly enough, my cousin brought me to one of their first music video shoots um, at their apartment in Harlem. And he just said, you know, I know you're into video, so Maybe you want to come and check this out. And you know, I brought a, an extra camera just in case. And long story short, go up there where they have a whole plan for the video. They have a director or whatever. And I brought a camera. So I said, Hey, I can get this other angle if you want. And they said, okay, that's cool. And funny story is that the director ended up having to go home early. So she left. And when she left, my cousin's friend turned to me and was like, well, you got a camera. Do you think you could direct the rest of the video? And I just said, oh, OK, you know, I guess so. And um, directed the rest of the video. And then after we shot, um, maybe a couple weeks later, or maybe later that night. They said, "Well, we needed somebody to edit, Do you know, who could edit." And I was like, "Yeah, I'll take a crack at editing." So um, that was how I got my first music video directing and editing, you know, gig was just from, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, but that group, uh, that that group was named uh, Project Lumens, um, and they had they had a pretty big name um, in sort of the New York independent scene as well as in Atlanta, where they had initially formed. Um, and there was a couple other groups that I had worked with um, in that same area. There was this other cat named, um, named Sinton that we worked with quite a bit. I don't remember what he went by now, um, but he was pretty talented in a number of different ways. And then um, through doing work with them, I got more exposure. And a friend of mine from Oakland connected me to a group that was based in Brooklyn. And that group was called Game Rebellion. And they actually uh, had me come on and film their... I guess it was kind of like their um, their, show, their talent showcase night at, uh, at CBGB's in Manhattan. And so I filmed that for them and then edited it. And then that served as their reel that they used to try and talk to a lot of big labels after that. And that group actually got pretty big. Um, and they're still, from what I know, they're still doing music. Um, and they've even had a couple of spinoff groups as well. Um, and believe it or not, uh, the guitarist from Game Rebellion, his name is Yohimbe Sampson. He ended up coming and doing a show here in Oakland at, at my venue, Oak Stop, um, back in 2015. So it was probably you know 10 years after I'd initially worked with those guys, um, he ended up doing a show here in my venue. So while I was in New York with some of those same cats, um, ended up meeting more people um, such that I was just kind of in a scene. And being in that scene, I actually ended up meeting um, Most Deaf and Supernatural and uh, Dead Prez, and you know I, I always liked Dead Prez's music a lot. I, I just really liked what they were doing and the approach they took to the music. And then um, you know we just kind of I don't know. I think they're just very they're very accessible people um, because they are they are leaders. You know they 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 consider themselves leaders uh, politically or socially or what have you. So I think part of being a leader is being able to recognize the people that are around you. And so um, we ended up, I ended up doing a music video with them um, maybe years later with another friend of mine, Unity Lewis, who had recorded a track with, with Stickman. And so um, that was a really dope video that we did probably in 2010 um, for a track they recorded years before that. But, um, you know, I think that was... That was one of the videos that I did for an artist that I was always, you know, you know, very, very passionate about, and I felt like, okay, I've kind of made it now as a music video producer that I'm doing videos for, for these groups that I like, um, and then I later did videos for, um, if you know, the group uh, Zion I.
0: Yeah, Zoom, Zumbi and Anthony.
1: Yep, yeah. yep. So I became pretty cool with Zumbi, who, believe it or not, is interesting connection. Zumbi and I had met um, in Philly actually, when he was on the Calicom tour in 2004. and I was there. Um, I think he had invited me actually. He invited me there to just get backstage footage and, and, and footage of his show. And then from there, uh, as we kind of developed our relationship, oddly enough, it, it turned out that our parents knew each other, which was, you know kind of cool and also kind of funny that, you know our moms were, were, were buddies from back in the day. Um, so Zumbi was another artist that I had worked with and we did a couple of videos together. And then, um, later on my same friend, unity Lewis did a track with George Clinton and I got to do that video. And so Ooh. that was really cool to music video with George Clinton.
0: It all happened by being the right place, the right time, having the skills, being a cool dude and like understanding the artist's vision. Like, and it sounds like that's what you've been doing recently. And, especially with Oak Stop and the Oakland Black Business Fund, like using your skills in tech and understanding culture and people to, I don't know, I get, not to be too reductive about it, but make the world more beautiful in a, in a way that that's there's like an art to entrepreneurialism. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that chapter of your life.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you're right. I mean, there's, there's an art to entrepreneurialism. And, and I think that that phrase unto itself encapsulates almost my whole professional career, Um, so, you know, to give a little backstory on, on how I came to start Oakstop, uh, after I would finished college and was, you know, doing my independent thing, making music videos and doing a lot of hip hop things, um, I'd started a a media production company, just doing similar creative services. And in doing some of that work, um, ended up getting noticed by a large organization that wanted me to come and work for them and basically do a lot of the same um, multimedia production, but in house, and so um, that was working with this guy named Mitch Kapor, and Mitch Kapor is the person who created uh, Lotus, which created Lotus One Two Three, which was one of the first real kind of consumer level uh, electronic spreadsheet programs. You know, this is before Microsoft Excel, and so you know that was back in the 80s. So you know, you fast forward to 2005 when you know they had brought me in to interview. Um, they had all these different things going on because he had uh, kind of graduated from being just a, a software person to then being a tech investor and then also a philanthropist. So um, I basically got hired to be an in-house uh, multimedia producer uh, with all these different organizations, both tech companies, uh, nonprofits, and you know, other even kind of like experimental companies. Um, and within, a, within about six months to a year, I got promoted to cr- creative director And the whole idea there was that, you know, I was a creative person that was able to provide advice to somebody like Mitch um, on business decisions and and entrepreneurship. And so I did that work for about six years or so and then wanted to just do more and transitioned out of that, came back to Oakland and just said I wanted to take a lot of my skills back into the, you know, fine art scene, the, the gallery scene in Oakland. Um, hmm. at the time, uh, Oakland art murmur was becoming a big thing and the Oakland Friday night art walks were becoming a big thing. And so my, my vision was, you know, I could use my technology and, uh, sort of marketing communication skills to both kind of create, uh, inroads for myself within the gallery scene. If I want to actually, um, exhibit some of my own work, but also, um, I could use those same skills to help other artists, who you know, just don't have that sort of thing. And that's a lot of what I'd learned in New York was, yeah, there's all this talent, but people like couldn't build a website, couldn't make a business card, um, couldn't make their videos. So uh, I started a little uh, consulting company called Refined Arts, and the goal was to both uh, consult with businesses on how they could incorporate art into their space, but also consult with artists on how they could get their artwork into more of a business um, context. And so did that work for a little while and realized that one of the keys to success for a lot of these artists was having access to and control of a space where they could both exhibit their work but also um you know do their work and and have meetings with clients and things like that so uh, after about a year of doing that work and getting a couple of different clients you know here and there i actually stumbled into this building that i'm in now and another organization was thinking about using it uh, for, for their headquarters, but it turned out it was too much space for them. And so when I met the property manager and building manager, um, you know, I basically pitched them on this idea of, look, I think that I could take this large space, which at the time was 4,000 square feet. Um, I was like, I could take this and turn this into a space that's like an art gallery, an event space and like a co-working space for different entrepreneurs. And you know, all those different activities would combine to be able to sustain the rent that you guys are asking for every month. And mm-hmm. they, they basically gave me a shot and said that um, they'd give me three months to kind of demonstrate proof of concept um, if I paid them for all three months upfront at, at a discount. So mm-hmm. that was the deal. I, I used a lot of my savings and basically gave them what they were looking for, plus the security deposit. And then started the business. This was in January of 2014 um, when I got keys. and then from there, I actually opened the co-working space in the first week of February, uh, which was you know pretty quick to be able to get inside, um, get furniture in, you know, paint, kind of get everything set up, um, get a website going, a brand and everything like that. But I did it in a month and then from there, we, were, we opened as a co-working space that was focused on serving, um, serving creatives. And we really wanted to make sure that we could design a business community for all of the creative entrepreneurs in Oakland, uh, many of which were doing you know, a lot of freelancing and gig work and things like that. And for me, it was just a direct reflection of what I had done in New York, which was instead of having you know my buddy's loft space where we all just kind of hang out, into later the night, what if we had a commercial office space within downtown Oakland where graphic designers and video producers and website designers could do their work, but then if there's like performing artists, like musicians and, and MCs and anybody else, they could also show up there, and they would actually meet in the middle in this kind of space, and that's where they would find um, those business relationships. And mm. by being in the middle of downtown Oakland, they are also exposed to all the increased business activity that's here with um with all these big tech companies moving in. Um you know, this was before Square had moved down the street. Um and you know, Pandora was, you know, not too far away from where we are now. Um and there's a whole bunch of other tech companies that have since moved in right in this neighborhood. And so my thinking was if we can create this, you know, ecosystem of sort of entrepreneurially minded. Artists right in the middle of downtown Oakland, in the middle of this tech boom, then what's going to happen is that eventually people are going to turn to a place like Oakstop to source all their creative talent, and mm. in a lot of ways that that is what has happened over the years. And you know, as a result, um, you know, number one, we were able to to capitalize on that that overall vision. Um, but two, the the concept caught on with people that were sort of outside of the creative industries, um, you know, nonprofits and and activism, you know, other tech companies, um, even other sort of more just traditional, you know, corporations. Um, and as a result, people just loved the fact that we were sort of harnessing Oakland's authentic creative energy in a single space that people just said, I want to be part of this too, even though I'm not an artist. So the business really took off then from both a, uh, a co-working perspective, but also from an event meeting space rental perspective. And so we, we grew within this building from 4,000 square feet to you know, about twelve or 16,000 square feet um, over the course of about a year and a half, um, which included building out the entire basement here. I'd never done a current construction project, but just kind of jumped into it and, and we built out 8,000 square feet in our basement. And then um, we got to a point where we had about 16,000 square feet um, across the, the, the top floor in the basement before we got our second location, which is about six blocks from here. And we got that because a person who owns a building in downtown Oakland wanted it to be a space that would be friendly to artists and community, but also needed it to be a space that would um, that would cover the bottom line financially. And so... The owner, she she heard about Oakstop and she said, "Can we get Oakstop to come into this building? Because then they're going to fit, you know, all these three criteria that we have." So that was our second building, and that was about another eight thousand square feet. Um, then another buddy of mine um, from from the East Coast, he developed a sort of co-working and, and shared event space area uh, at Richmond Bart, um, not too far from here, and found out that I was doing co-working and said, "Hey." can I bring you into this location? Because I think you'll really help to activate that. So that was our third location. And then just recently, we got our fourth location, which is the old California Ballroom, which is around the corner from this building at 19th and Franklin.
0: That's a great story, man. And it's the need, I think, in the Bay to connect this disconnect between tech and like art that isn't profit-focused and like being a space where... Because those two things have always fed off of each other with Apple and everything.
1: Most people just... Could not be in the space um, in general. Um, that's just a couple things. Um, number one, Oakstop actually provides essential services, um, and one of those essential services is mail service. Mm. We have we have about two hundred people that get their business mail sent here, so we had to maintain um, you know operations just so people could pick up their mail. So that was something that never really stopped throughout the entire course of the pandemic. And then we also host a couple of essential businesses here, one of which is Meals on Wheels. Um, so Meals on Wheels has been active here in our space throughout the pandemic as well. So in some ways, we've, we've had to maintain operations. And on top of that, there's been a couple of people that have wanted to um, continue using the co-working space. And given that it's really only, you know, it's less than half a dozen, it's kind of like, you know, why not? Um, they're, they're distanced enough across all the space that we have here um, and then on top of that there's a lot of different meetings that we've had here um, a whole range of things um, some of which are actually is considered essential for instance we hosted a whole series for a few months it was a uh, it was a construction company's health and safety training was oh. hosted here and so it was actually good revenue for us as a business but then also you know it was something that these construction workers, Needed to have so they could go out there and continue doing these jobs um, during this this time that we're in. So you know, there's been a lot of things that have still happened, but yeah, I mean, overall, like I said before, you know, we went from this building being buzzing and full every day to the point that I often couldn't even find like a meeting room to sit in with you know the people I was meeting with. Um, to now, it's you know, it's vacant most of the time and. You know, I'm, I'm here now. I think there's one or two other people that are here in the building. Um, so it's pretty quiet. So it's, it's, it's giving me time to explore other projects and, and put my time and interest into other things here in the community.
0: And one of which that ties in is the uh, Oakland Black Business Fund, right? Which you've raised so much money.
1: That's right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so Oakland Black Business Fund is something that we started in June um, of 2020 and it was right after the George Floyd murder. And I guess what we were looking at was the fact that already in the pandemic, a lot of black businesses were struggling um, because there's just this historical lack of access to capital that they've had. Um, you combine that then with an event like the George Floyd murder, where then you have people taking it to the streets and, and protesting and you know, breaking a lot of, of property Many of which was actually the property of of black business owners. so it was this really sort of backwards um, you know double jeopardy that black business owners found themselves in where they were already struggling, and now there's you know this huge assault on the black community, which actually ends up um, you know further damaging black businesses and and what was unfortunate is that there seemed to be a trend um, that a lot of the people that were doing damages, damage to these, these businesses, particularly the black businesses, were, were non black people. So, um, a friend of mine who works in commercial real estate, she started a GoFundMe campaign to try and raise funds for a couple of businesses that, that were within her sort of real estate developments. And she started with a goal of trying to raise $5,000 and told me about it right as she launched it. And within a couple of days, it had gone, you know, five to 10 to 15. And then, you know, I just kind of jumped in to to help her even more, kind of get the word out and what have you. And within about a week and a half, we raised $100,000. And, you know, it was really exciting to see that many people kind of, you know, sort of come to, to, to the aid of the black community with, with money in particular. And so, you know, as we were... Bringing in all these funds through GoFundMe, we realized that there was also, you know, a lot more that could be done for these businesses beyond just uh, fixing their their broken windows. And so, at that point, we said maybe we should take these funds and convert it into an organization that would actually support businesses both with with damage relief, but also with uh, with technical assistance and helping con- to connect them to, you know, marketing services and accounting services and other things that would allow them to continue to grow their businesses. But then also, you know, in doing so, we can create sort of a network of, of both uh, black technical assistance providers as well as black businesses who are in need of that assistance. And hopefully that will kind of create that ecosystem where you get a lot of um, sort of self-reliance within it um, as well as sort of a uh, positive feedback loop and a virtuous cycle of businesses that are helping each other and also expressing what they need help with and then finding you know support for those needs. And so that was in June. And then from there, we, we kind of set off on this mission to continue raising more money and supporting more businesses. And now fast forward to where we are in, in March. Here we are, I guess, what now? Roughly uh, nine months later, we've raised close to $450,000. Uh, we've supported... About 75 businesses and we've deployed over $200,000 in capital and we've served 28 different neighborhoods in Oakland.
0: People want to help and so creating this conduit through which people could is like that's another way of finding a need and connecting people. And that seems like one of your that's always been one of your talents. There's a
1: branding implication to this in terms of making sure that we can kind of get the the visibility. Um, there's a network component to it and I was already connected to a lot of black businesses through you know, having a co-working space like Oakstop, um, But then there's also just an entrepreneurial aspect in terms of building an organization. And we're entirely volunteer led. So we have, we probably had about 150 people sign up to, to support as volunteers. And more recently, we've had a core of about 40 to 45 volunteers um, that are actively engaged. And so a lot of the work has been, how do you organize all these volunteers into an operational structure that can help Drive the organization forward so that you know it's not just you know the few of us who are the sort of lead organizers doing all the work, but you also then have a platform for people who want to find a way to give back to this cause. There's a platform for them to get engaged and, and do work in a meaningful way um, that kind of aligns more with how they might be used to doing work, you know, in their normal jobs. Um, you know, in terms of just kind of working within an organization. So um, mm. that's been a big part of it, and I'm really proud of this past month, where we took our—we have a business development committee of maybe, you know, six to ten people, and we took that committee and we gave them a, a challenge of raising twenty-eight thousand dollars in the twenty-eight days of Black History Month, and it was their first time having to work together as a team um, and execute on a strategy that had a very sort of finite timeline to it. And you know, I'm proud to say that they raised twenty eight thousand dollars in twenty-six days.
0: Dude, that's that's very inspiring and very like it's it's interesting to see how during COVID positive things have come out of it and people have been people realize they need each other and like even though we're separated, communities seem to've come together across across the world, I, I, I like to think. If people listening right now want to support the Oak Stop or the Oakland Black Business Fund, where can we direct our listeners?
1: Uh, so for Oak Stop, you can go to oakstop.com. That's O-A-K-S-T-O-P.com. And for Oakland Black Business Fund, um, our website is oaklandblackbusinessfund.org. Um, and to donate in particular, um, you just go to oaklandblackbusinessfund.org slash donate and there's sort of a crowdfunding interface on that page and it's really easy just to pay either via i think they accept credit card um, venmo even um, paypal or check so there's any you know host of ways to donate
0: small businesses are really what have been hurt by covid so being able to ho- and help and especially people communities that are often neglected unfortunately by systematic racism and all the things that we don't talk about but like you're taking a stand against man and it's, it's really great
1: yeah exactly exactly uh oak stop just also did a little campaign with a local bank here community bank of the bay where we focused on getting um awareness of the the government's ppp loans um focus on getting awareness and resources to primarily um, primarily, we're focused on actually artists and creatives as well as freelancers and gig workers um, and primarily you know, folks who are also from communities of color because we found that those were the demographics that were left out of the PPP loans when they came out last year. And so we did a, a big video campaign where we put out maybe seven or eight different um, small videos with me interviewing the CEO and the CEO, this Chief Credit Officer of the bank, um, talking about how artists and, and freelancers can get access to those loans from the perspective of somebody like myself, who's both a small business owner and also an artist,
0: and a video producer too. Using that skill.
1: That's right. We did the campaign, and, and it's funny because the campaign was, you know, it was essentially a commercial for the bank, um, even though it had Oak Stop's branding on it as well. But people still hit us up, like on Instagram and. You know, on other channels saying like, hey, so like, are you going to help me with my PPP loan? And I was like, no, nah, you know, that's, that's the commercial was to say, go talk to the bank. And yeah. it, it became clear that people still trusted us more than they might trust any, you know, any institution. And so right. they said, okay, well, I still want to like, you know, talk to you about it first before I go talk to the bank.
0: Thank you for your time today. Thanks for being being down to be on the show. Where can people follow you specifically, or do you direct people towards your um, project? In
1: recent years, I've made most of my sort of online personal brand is is Oakstop. So if you want to find Oakstop on Instagram, we're just Oakstop O A K S T O P. Um, Same thing with Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, what have you. Um, We don't. I wish we had. you know, more of a presence on, say, like a, a SoundCloud or um, something like that. But, you know, that's hopefully coming soon. Um, but yeah, Oaktop is where people can find me and they can see all of the latest projects that I'm working on. Um, I'll make a plug for our most recent art exhibit. Um, it's called The Shape of Blackness, and it is a virtual art exhibit that features artists from Oakland and artists from South Africa that are creating art that responds to their perspective on the black experience um, and how those perspectives differ but also um, have similarities between a place like Oakland, California and and Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, It's it's cool because we've put all the work into a 3D virtual gallery where people Mm. can actually move around in 3D space and see this work juxtaposed between artists from different continents and then we're working on a video campaign right now as well. The first video will probably release this week and we'll have a few more videos with the different artists um, coming out over the course of the next few months. And there'll be a few virtual events as well, bringing the South African and U.S.-based artists together
0: to talk. Both being places that have had to fight like horrific institutionalized racism that's taken time. But now it's funny, breaking down the walls and being able to virtually combine them. It's, it's really, that's awesome, man. I'm going to check that out. That's cool.
1: Yeah. And so that's it's, it's on our website on oakstop.com. Okay. But we also made a sort of mini website for it as well, which is just shapeofblackness.com.
0: Great to have you on, Trevor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew.
1: It's, this has been awesome. And, you know, I, I look forward to us staying connected and finding other ways that we can continue to work together.
0: That'd be tight. I would be honored to. Let's make that happen. Maybe there's a track of yours we can drop.
1: My buddy Unity Lewis and I, we did a song back in 2009, right after Michael Jackson passed away. And it was a Michael Jackson tribute music video where we wrote raps about not just Michael Jackson and how much we liked him, but we got political with it, talking about how, um, you know, the, the mainstream system did not like seeing a black man um, amass so much power through his celebrity. And as a result, found several ways to sort of systematically tear him down throughout the years. And it's this great song that kind of combines this sort of black revolutionary mindset with also just looking at all of these old clips of Michael Jackson from over the years. Um, I edited it so that we used maybe 20 different Michael Jackson videos um, from his childhood all the way up through the end of his career. Um, and then we shot it all on green screen. With my buddy and I wearing the same outfits that Michael was wearing in the music videos, so that it looked like we were actually part of his music videos rapping about why he was so great. That's that's quite a project. Sure. Um it's called Michael Jackson Shining.
0: That's what's up. Okay, cool. This real real serious. It's
2: real real serious. It's real real serious. Right, here is limitation, train. No, I'm you I'm talking about one of the greats. Don't hate, congratulate. <laughs> check, check they want the tear down a true black legend shining, but no matter what you say, my brother Michael is shining. You talk a lot of lies about him, but we see that you're lying. Brother Michael is shining. Brother Michael is shining. Michael is shining. They want the tear down a true black legend shining, but no matter what you say, my brother Michael is shining. They talk a lot of lies about him, but we see that they're lying. Brother Michael is shining. Brother Michael is. Shining. Brother Michael is it's Michael Jackson. It's Michael who you It's Michael Jackson. It's Michael Jackson. It's Michael who you It's Michael Jackson. It's Michael Jackson. It's Michael who you It's Michael Jackson. It's Michael Jackson. It's Michael who you It's Michael Jackson. No matter what you say. You know you used to bump Michael back in the day. In fact, Michael Jackson was the only thing you played. Lip, singing, listening to everything he said. So tell me why they bump to talk about him that way. He always spoke the truth. He raised my moms and pops up in the days. Of thank you, I'm gon' take it way back to the days of ABC123, don't rate me, make you came. That's when your daddy rocked to Jackson's afro in his hair The youngest of all his brothers would bear the most flair So why, oh why do they try to discredit The man's what you call a legend, we should never forget No matter what you say, his heart stayed in a real truthful place He moved and walked across the stage, introduced robotic brakes The smoothest 10-year-old to ever cover Smokey Robinson love song You can misinform this generation, but his genius lives on It's Michael Jackson, it's Michael who, y'all It's Michael Jackson It's Michael Jackson it's Michael who y'all It's Michael Jackson It's Michael Jackson It's Michael who y'all It's Michael Jackson It's Michael Jackson It's Michael who y'all It's Michael Jackson I remember
1: Jackson 5 And remember the time And seeing Billie Jean live on Motown 25 And know your memories alive And your soul's in the sky I know I never ever could truly Say goodbye, I danced in my room till I could no more. And moonwalked in my socks over hardwood floors. As a child, I was wild when your songs came on So now I know I gotta sing to keep your spiritual strong And now I'm watching music videos and know what to do Keep inspiring the youth cause you inspired me too And everything that I learned is everything that I give Back to the kids so that black man lives Cause when a black man dies, his people don't cry They celebrate his soul as he ascends to the sky And no matter what they wanna say about our black king He's still reigning over pop when we shine and sing
2: they wanna tear down, a true black legend shining. But no matter what you say, my brother Michael is shining. They talk a lot of lies about him, but we see that they're lying. Brother Michael is shining, brother Michael is shining, they wanna tear down, a true black legend shining. But no matter what they say, my brother Michael is shining. You talk a lot of lies about him, but we see that you're lying. Brother Michael is shining, brother Michael is shining. See, back when you was just an itty bitty shorty. You brought real leather jackets with zippers was real sporty. You used to tell your moms, I wanna meet my Michael Jackson wanted to be a star like him and rock all his fashion. So tell me why'd you go and throw his album in the trash can? He used to look up to him and was inspired by his passion. Is it because the media wanted to make children afraid of him? Because they saw with his money that he was giving hate to him? And they don't want the children to love Michael Jackson. That would make it possible for the future generations of all. ethnicities to two love black men. That's part of one big master plan, man. To try to keep the brother down when he got the upper hand, man. But Michael always told him, beat it. Oh, just leave me alone, your pressure, I don't need it Cause he's unbreakable and invincible yeah. hey, yo, I think they should've made Michael Jackson the school praise It's it, Michael Jackson, it's Michael who, y'all? It's Michael Jackson It's Michael Jackson, it's Michael, Jackson. It's it's Michael who, y'all? It's Michael Jackson It's Michael Jackson, yeah. it's, it's, Michael Jackson. it's Michael who Yeah, damn, a true black legend shining, but no matter what you say, my brother Michael is shining. You talk a lot of lies about him, but we see that you're lying. Brother Michael is shining. Brother Michael is shining. Shinin'. They wanna tear down a true black legend shining, but no matter what you say, the brother Michael is shining. no matter what you say, the brother Michael is shining. Brother Michael is shining. Brother Michael is shining. What nothing strange about Michael It was strange that Michael had to deal with, but he dealt with it. He dealt with it for us Thank you because you never stopped Thank you because you never gave up Thank you because you never gave up Thank you because you you tore down our divisions. Thank you because you eradicated barriers Thank you because you gave us hope Thank you, Michael Thank you, Michael Thank you Michael Thank
0: you, Mike. Awesome. That was awesome. Thank you, Trevor. Next week I'm talking to Brandon Patton, who is otherwise known as Black Lotus, not to be confused with Dark Lotus. <laughs> Some of you might remember my interview with Brian from My Fight Dragons. We thought that was a hilarious tangent about magic the gathering and juggalo culture but check it out that will be next month so that episode episode 119 will be out cinco de mayo i drop these the first wednesday of every month next week uh the new hatchet chat is coming out that's about twisted's most tasteless the major label island records re-release thank you all for listening i hope you're all doing well and i'll talk to you soon take care have a good month bye